The following morning show interview was recorded back in 2002. I'm very pleased to have with me on the phone today for today's morning show, author Richard Blow, who is responsible for a book that has generated all kinds of discussion, a fascinating book which uh, I thoroughly enjoyed and which I think you might enjoy as well. The book is called American Son, a Portrait of John F. Kennedy, Jr., Richard Blow was on the staff of George Magazine, uh, the political magazine which uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. launched in 1995. And Richard Blow was uh, on the staff of George right up uh, to the time of JFK Jr.'s uh, tragic death and uh, for some time beyond as well. And uh, has written an account of, of his years at George Magazine and his uh, impressions of JFK Jr., American Sun is published by Henry Holt and Company. And Richard Blow, we welcome you to the morning show. Oh, thanks for having me on, Greg. Um, this book is, of course, about more than JFK Jr. It's it's also a really interesting look at at the magazine world, and we we learned a, a little bit about you along the way, of course, mm-hmm. as well. But one of the things I was really struck by is is actually how little there is about you. Uh, we get done reading the book, and we don't know really where you come from or very much about you. And I wonder if you would uh, uh, mind beginning by just giving us a little bit of your own personal background before you came to George Magazine. No, not at all. I grew up in Connecticut and uh, went to school there. I went to Yale, actually. And after finishing college in 1986, I moved down to Washington and got into political journalism. I worked at the New Republic magazine for a while. I spent some time in D.C., and then I went to graduate school for three years studying American history. And then, uh, unfortunately, I dropped out. I was a Ph.D. candidate, and I decided that that academic life was not for me. Uh, It was in 1992 that I dropped out, and I just was really uh, intrigued by the energy of the Clinton campaign uh, in the sense that it seemed to be that for the first time in some time, a political candidate was really uh, engaging people in the political process again. So I went back to Washington and uh, got back into journalism, worked there for a monthly magazine called Regardies, a political magazine as well. And uh, in 1995, in May of 1995, I moved up to New York to join the staff of George. Had you, uh, for a long time, I mean, even growing up as a young person, had, had writing been one of your primary interests? Yeah, it always had. Uh, I was kind of a quiet kid, and uh, I read incessantly. And my father was a magazine editor. He worked for Newsweek and Reader's Digest. And so that was uh, in the family blood. When you write about coming aboard George Magazine, it, it's interesting to me how uh, in, in some ways you were a, a bit skeptical, uh, not only about the magazine itself, its prospects, but, but also a bit skeptical about uh, the man who's, whose brainchild it was, uh, John F. Kennedy, Jr., Right. Tell us a little bit about that initial skepticism and and uh, and, and the almost trepidation with which you you uh, took took the position at George. Well, two things. First, I was intrigued by the idea of the magazine, which was to create a political magazine for people who didn't ordinarily read political magazines. Uh, I thought that was a really worthy goal, even though I wasn't necessarily sure that it would work financially, uh, because political magazines always have a tough time making a profit. Uh, on a more personal level, I didn't know John Kennedy before working at George and knew only what I'd read of him, which was not always that flattering. Uh, the portrait of John that was painted in the media at that time, which was about 1995, was of a uh, polite, 
decent young fellow who didn't really seem to know what he wanted to do with his life and maybe was a little bit lacking in the brains department. Uh, there had been a lot of attention paid to the fact that John had not uh, had failed the bar exam in New York twice, and a sense that uh, this was a guy who didn't really know what he wanted to do with his life. Hmm. Uh, and also, of course, he had no practical uh, journalism experience, at least in terms of working within the field. Now, as I came to see, John knew an awful lot about journalism because few people had been written about more than he had. Uh, and that gives you the kind of experience in journalism that is really invaluable. One of the things that I, I uh, most enjoyed in the book was was your account of first meeting him mm-hmm. when you were uh, sitting down into in in the in the, the corporate offices of the the media company that would be publishing uh, George magazine, and and you talk about uh, meeting him for the first time and your fear that you were going to be tongue tied on that on that yeah. first encounter. Tell us a little bit about that very first time you, you set eyes on JFK Jr. Well, I wrote that uh, I was sort of a celebrity skeptic in theory, but then uh, in practice, when you actually meet one, uh, maybe you're going to have a different reaction. I interviewed with John uh, in his office. Um, it was just a, a kind of traditional job interview, except John was very casual and, and, uh, and very uh, approachable. But at the same time, I kept feeling that I wanted to ask him the questions instead of having him ask me the questions because, you know, I led a kind of ordinary life, and uh, whereas he had had already this quite remarkable life. I mean, uh, born to those two fascinating parents and, and having traveled the world and, and, and being part of that whole family, you know, John's life was truly unusual, whereas although I was perfectly happy with my life, there was nothing so out of the ordinary about it. One of your, your uh, closing thoughts about John F. Kennedy Jr. at, at the very end of the book is something that we, we, we get a sense of this from, from the very first time you write about him. is the fact that although uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. came from a, a privileged background and from a family of wealth and so on, uh, you, you say at the, at the very end of the book, uh, he was proof that you can be rich and famous and beautiful and still treat ordinary people as if the United States is a democracy rather than an oligarchy of wealth, power, and, and celebrity. Mm-hmm. You know, people sometimes ask me why I think John was an important figure when uh, he hadn't had time in his life to make uh, you know, too many tangible accomplishments. And this is what I say, that John represented something that was very important, uh, which was this sense of obligation um, and public service. Now, nobody would have blamed John if he'd led a, a reclusive life and, and kind of stayed back from contact with uh, the American public. But he didn't do that. Uh, for all of his advantages and all of his differentness, he still felt that as, um, as the son of a political family, uh, a family of public servants, he had a responsibility uh, to try to treat everyone with respect and courtesy, even though sometimes... Um, Sometimes it was a pain for him. I mean, uh, he was always being approached, and people were always calling out to him on the street, and this wasn't always easy. Uh, I really admired how gracefully he handled that kind of attention, and this sense that uh, just the fact that he was a celebrity did not make him better than other people. You know, there, there's so much um, glorification of celebrities in our society, and that was something John was very skeptical of. Uh, he seemed to think... Uh, that we need to remember what was really important, 
um, which is the good work that people do. And I, I thought that was a very important signal to send. We're talking with uh, Richard Blow, the author of American Son, a portrait of John F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, I want to find out a little bit about your, your initial impressions of this whole concept of the magazine George. And I wonder, too, uh, to what extent uh, John F. Kennedy Jr., and for that matter his uh, business partner, Michael Berman, how clear an idea did, did they even have about what would be in the pages of George mm-hmm. magazine? As a concept, um, they had a very strong idea about what George would be. Their feeling was that uh, there was a kind of connection in American culture between politics and celebrity, that Hollywood and Washington had this symbiotic relationship, uh, and that one way to get people engaged in politics is to create a magazine that would operate right at that connection point, that would cover the connections between politics and celebrity, and show the human sides of politicians. Uh, I think, you know, it was a very smart idea and really felt appropriate for for the time, the mid-1990s, uh, when you found more and more Hollywood types getting involved in politics and Washington more and more uh, interested in the kinds of um, crowd techniques that, that actors used. Uh, now, when we started... Um, it was a real challenge to take that kind of abstract idea and translate it into actual stories. And, uh, you know, we we took a few issues to kind of get the formula down, as you would with any new magazine. But I I thought it was a terrific idea, and I still think so. You you described the staff at George at one point as a motley but enthusiastic crew, considerably smaller in number than the staffs of a typical glossy startup. I imagine... Uh, that whole process of just getting a magazine off the ground, especially one that really had no uh, exact predecessor, uh, had to be uh, uh, challenging but exhilarating all at the same time. It was. It was a little scary, uh, but incredibly fun. Scary for two reasons. One, because as you say, no one had ever tried to create this kind of magazine, so it was all uncharted territory. And also because, uh, somewhat to our surprise, we found everything in our office was the object of intense media scrutiny. Uh, we thought, well, we're just trying to put out a magazine. It's, you know, it's fun for us, but not necessarily for the whole world. Yet there seemed to be no end to newspaper items about the stories that we were signing and things that were happening in the office. So there was this sense of uh, not only pressure internally in terms of putting out the magazine, but pressure from the outside because so many people seemed interested in what we were doing. At one point in the book, I'm pretty sure you call yourself the oldest man on the staff. At some point, after maybe some defections, uh, you were the you were the senior person aboard, and you right. were not old. You were what thirty or thirty one or something like right, that. Right, something like that. So that that gives us a, a picture too of a staff that was quite young and quite energetic, but yep. I would think uh, rather inexperienced as well. Yeah, um, John was older than uh, I am by about four years, and his partner Michael Berman was also a good bit older. Uh, although Michael wound up leaving after a couple of years. So it was a very young staff, uh, and the upside to that was that we could all work very hard and that people were pretty idealistic. Uh, the downside of it was that uh, we had some learning on the job to do. I remember vividly purchasing that, that very first issue of George, and uh, you tell a story about what was to have been one of the most interesting uh, contributions to that first issue which featured um, 
Well, what's her name? Cynthia? Cindy Crawford. Cindy Crawford on the cover, sort of dressed as George Washington. And there was to be a piece by the great Gore Vidal (laughs) to be part of that. And uh, uh, tell us about your encounters with Mr. Vidal and why his essay ended up not appearing in the pages of the magazine. Uh, It's a funny story. John asked uh, Vidal to write an essay about the character of George Washington, which seemed an appropriate piece for the first issue of a magazine called George. Well, Vidal agreed, and uh, and I would be the editor of it. Uh, Vidal agreed, and when he turned it in, I read it with this kind of mounting horror because Vidal had written this kind of anti-George Washington screed. Uh, it was all about how he'd been forced to read books about Washington and sort of what an unpleasant man Washington had been. Well, I talked to John about this, and we both agreed that it was not the most appropriate tone for the, our first issue. And uh, and I had to get back on the phone with Vidal and say, well, do you think you could maybe change this a little bit? And there was kind of a silence on the other end. And he said, well, people don't edit my work. <laughs> they either accept it or they let it go. So we wound up letting it go. <laughs> and it's too bad in a way. In retrospect, I think we probably should have said, what the heck, we can handle it. Um, it's just important to have a piece by Gore Vidal. Right. It's kind of interesting. I hadn't thought of that till just now. But one of the things that has been been said about uh, JFK Jr. not so much maybe by you in so many words, but in some of the reviews I've read of your book, mm-hmm. uh, some have said that the, the the picture that is painted in terms of JFK Jr. as an editor is the fact that he is rather gun shy and hesitant. Yeah, uh, that he does not go after. Uh, all the big stories that really could have generated a lot of buzz. He, there is hesitancy in his work as editor, particularly uh, in, in the beginning. You're right. And that wasn't a huge surprise because, after all, this was a guy who'd had a very ambivalent relationship with the press. Not so much the tabloid press, which John didn't kind of care all that much about. What he felt frustration about was with the political press, uh, who he felt had a certain kind of cynicism and negativity about politics. Um, that did not reflect his feelings about people who went into public service. So John was a little reluctant to assign pieces uh, or or chase stories that were uh, too negative or unflattering or just too tough. Now, he changed that a little bit as the years went on, uh, but in general, he was much more comfortable assigning negative pieces when those pieces were about uh, journalists instead of about politicians. He liked to turn the tables on journalists and say, well, you know, you're the ones who write these negative pieces. Let's see how you feel when they're written about you. An interesting question for any magazine uh, that is covering politics is the question of, of bias. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, JFK Jr. himself was a Democrat uh, and a more liberal sort of persuasion. Actually, uh, sort of a moderate uh, Democrat, I think. Okay. Um what would you say was were his characterized for us his efforts as as an editor to remain unbiased to an extent to be fair to to, mm-hmm. uh, to politicians on both sides of the aisle and the staff then as well? This actually came pretty easily for John because although he was a Democrat uh, by birth, uh, his positions could not be easily categorized. And you could look at Ted Kennedy and say you know he's a Democrat. I don't think that was so true with John in some ways. Um, and in terms of how he assigned stories, John was not so interested in uh, the positions of people in politics. He was more interested in uh, 
their personalities and their character. I I think that when you grow up in a political family, uh, what is more interesting to you is the character of the people who are in the business rather than the, the, spe- the specific positions that they take. John liked both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, he didn't much care sort of uh, where a person stood on the issues as long as he felt their beliefs were genuine and heartfelt. Well, and it sounds like he, he really believed strongly that, that statesmen needed to be in the business of, of caring about people yes. and, and, uh, and, and the citizens of the country. Yes, he did really believe that. And, for example, uh, the uh, Monica Lewinsky scandal was a source of great frustration for him because although he, he thought that Clinton's behavior was inappropriate, he thought it was uh, relatively unimportant compared to the good work that he thought Clinton had done for the country or tried to do and the sacrifices that Clinton had made to uh, to become a public servant. So this idea that Washington's press corps was hounding the president for a year over an indiscretion with an intern, um, felt to John that it was really a waste of time uh, and inappropriate, considering the amount of work that the president was trying to do on behalf of the American people. He resented the distraction that it represented. He, he just thought it was irrelevant, really, that whatever Clinton had done with Monica Lewinsky might not be uh, appropriate or, or the best conduct, but it was trivial compared to the work of the presidency. We're talking with Richard Blow, the author of American Son, a portrait of John F. Kennedy Jr., published by Henry Holt and Company. Back to the uh, first issue of George Magazine and uh, some of those initial efforts to get the magazine off the ground, I find uh, particularly gripping uh, your account of JFK Jr. flying down to Alabama to interview uh, the former governor, George Wallace. Uh, you tell that story uh, so superbly. Uh, give us at least a sketch of that uh, encounter and, and, and what it represented. Sure. Well, this was uh, to be John's first interview, of course. Uh, he did a number of interviews for George. And it was fascinating to me that he chose Wallace, who had, after all, been an old and bitter foe of John's father and John's uncle Bobby during the Civil Rights era. Uh, I couldn't quite figure it out, except I thought, one, John wanted to learn more about that time from one of the few people who was around who was really a practitioner uh, during it, a player. And, of course, Wallace had been uh, shot. He had been the victim of an assassination attempt that left him paralyzed. And I think, of course, that struck a certain chord with John. So he flew to Alabama to meet with Wallace, and Wallace was bedridden, in enormous pain, uh, but he was sitting in bed watching a black and white television and smoking cigar after cigar after cigar. He couldn't really speak very well, and he couldn't really hear very well. So John had to write questions down on on big pieces of construction paper and hold them up and then wait very slowly and very patiently while Wallace took minutes just to get a few sentences out. It was a very difficult interview, but it proved to be a fascinating conversation. You, uh, you touch on a number of, of such interviews uh, uh, during the book, although I think that that first one is uh, particularly uh, interesting. And I remember at some point in the book you talk about how uh, certain staff members at the magazine really wanted to highlight those JFK Jr. interviews uh, in a way that would make them even more visible, <laughs> give them a byline and so on, and that was something that he was uncomfortable with. 
he was. What we wanted to do is we wanted to brand this interview so we could put it on the cover every time, called the John the um, John F. Kennedy interview or the John Kennedy interview. And uh, that was a big selling point for the magazine. Advertisers liked it and readers liked it a lot. But John was very uncomfortable with it uh, for a couple reasons. One, he still felt that he was a journalist in training. And so it was awkward for him to feel that we were promoting these interviews uh, when he was still uh, learning how to conduct them. And two, he was just very uncomfortable in having his name on the cover of George. Uh, John was this, uh, a pretty modest guy, all things considered. And uh, that made him feel a little bit squeamish. And the same thing was true of the fact that uh, we used to take a photograph of John with his interview subjects and uh, run it in the magazine. Uh, readers really liked to see that. Uh, but John was more and more uncomfortable with it. And he would say, you know, what other journalist uh, who does an interview gets his picture in the magazine? Uh, so we would have to shoot the pictures in kind of increasingly artful ways, either sort of in shadow or shot from behind or with both people blurred, uh, just because John didn't like having his picture run in the magazine. As a matter of fact, his photo never appeared on the cover until the very last issue of the magazine, correct? Yeah, it was kind of a painful irony because John was so uncomfortable with this that he used to joke, uh, and people would ask him, are you ever going to put yourself on the cover? And he would say, you know, trust me, the, the cover I'm, a, I'm on will be the last issue of George Magazine. Well, as it turned out, it was the last issue of George Magazine. Uh, it came out about a year and a half after his death, and it was a tribute to the magazine's founder. Uh, tell us something about JFK Jr. as an interviewer. Was he any good? He was good, but not in a conventional sense. John was very uncomfortable with confrontational questions, uh, with gotcha questions. Uh, he felt that he had been the subject of these kinds of questions himself, and he didn't like them. He, he, wouldn't, he would feel like a hypocrite turning around and asking them of other people. So what he would try to do is to engage in a, almost a conversation with his interview subjects, uh, a conversation between two people who both knew something about public life and wanted to just talk about the issues involved in, in being in, uh, part of public life. Now, those were a little bit unusual because they could meander somewhat, or and they were not confrontational. They were not traditional in, the, in that sense. But I felt that, in some ways, John often got more interesting answers out of people because they knew that he was not trying to embarrass them or catch them in a gaffe. Uh, they felt more relaxed with John that way. You also uh, talk in the book about the fact that because he was John F. Kennedy Jr., he had a, a certain uh, access to people uh, yeah. that that uh, that, uh, that a typical editor in chief uh, would not have, and yet he seemed reluctant and uh, didn't seem, and he he in fact very much was reluctant to sort of tread on his name in order to to, to gain high profile. Uh, subjects, for instance. For yeah, example. it's really true. And I, I think that this was a, a tension between John, the businessman and journalist, and John, uh, who was raised by this uh, incredibly polite uh, mother. Um, John felt awkward about taking advantage of his entree to try to land interviews or gain access. He felt in some ways that that was exploiting himself. And of course, he was right. Uh, but the magazine did need it. Uh, we were a new political magazine, and 
uh, you know, you need every kind of uh, foot in the door that you can get. Uh, so at first, John was very reluctant to do things like call writers and ask them to do pieces for George. But as time went on, he grew more and more comfortable. Uh, I think he felt more and more like he had become a journalist and that this was what journalists do. And you had to fight to get every scoop, uh, every exclusive that you could. As, it, as uh, the deadline approached for that first issue to be released, of course, a big question was what would appear on the cover. And we've already touched on what, right. in fact, did appear, uh, that interesting photo of Cynthia uh, Crawford uh, posed as George Washington. You, uh, you, you talk about that and the fact that many of you on the staff uh, were not uh, particularly excited about the choice. Well, remember, I'd come from Washington, D.C., which is a town that takes politics very seriously. Uh, and I knew how this cover of Cindy Crawford uh, would be reacted to in Washington, uh, which was uh, not well. And people would say, how can you put a model on the cover of a political magazine? No one's going to take you seriously. But John and his partner had this very strong sense. They wanted to signal that this was going to be a different kind of political magazine, a commercial, mainstream political magazine. And who represented that better than Cindy Crawford? Uh, and in the end, you know, I think they were right. Uh, Washington did go crazy about the cover, and people did say, uh, this is not serious. But people out in the rest of the country seemed to get it, um, that this was kind of a playful cover and a signal that George wasn't going to be your father's political magazine. I will never forget JFK Jr.'s appearance on Murphy Brown, which yeah. you, uh, you talk about as well. I have a feeling a lot of our listeners uh, might only vaguely remember that. Uh, well, John, uh, right around the time that our first issue came out, made this cameo appearance on Murphy Brown, in which he came and gave Murphy a one-year subscription to George for her uh, birthday. And uh, she uh, sort of joked that that wasn't really such a great birthday gift, and John kind of walked off in a playful huff. Um, it was something that uh, that John and Michael Berman both felt was a good idea to do because uh, neither of them were convinced that uh, that the sort of traditional political media were going to give George a fair shake, and they wanted to try to promote the magazine in some unconventional ways uh, and maybe deal with a sense of humor, uh, which was very important. Uh, and that Murphy Brown role was just part of that media plan to to uh, showcase John and George in some unusual formats. That first issue of George magazine, uh, when it appeared on newsstands in 1995, flew off the stands. I think 500,000 copies sold out, yep. more had to be printed and so on. I'm one of them that bought that first issue. Mm -hmm. uh, people obviously snapped it up, but, uh, but the criticism, uh, by and large, was pretty negative. Um, what did, what did uh, critics not like about George? Oh, a lot of things. <laughs> I think, in general... Uh, uh, traditional political reporters and columnists were very skeptical about this combination of politics and celebrity. And I think that's because it's a little bit threatening to them. Uh, after all, uh, the folks in Washington uh, who are on these Sunday talk shows and write political columns uh, feel like they make a very good living by setting themselves up as the only people who can explain Washington to the rest of the country. And yet, here we were, this uh, magazine based in New York. We'd gotten a lot of attention, a lot of advertising, coming along and saying, well, no, we're going to do something very different, and we're going to try to reach people that you ignore. Uh, 
And so this was, I think, a real threat. Um, and people uh, responded uh, angrily, in a way, and often very personally. Uh, John was criticized for doing the magazine. People said that he was uh, demeaning himself by creating this glossy magazine, that he was somehow trivializing uh, the legacy of his father. And in fact, I, I thought John's intention was just the opposite, that he thought his father was uh, someone who connected with ordinary people very powerfully, uh, and that that connection had, in politics, been lost a little bit, uh, in part because the political press was so hostile to the people it covered. Uh, George was an attempt to try to fix that. Uh to to whatever extent you can be unbiased with a question like this, sure. how do you how do you view uh, the the negative criticism of George magazine, particularly those first couple of high profile issues? I mean, do you think any of the criticism was unwarranted, or do you feel like, uh, in terms of its content and its mission, that it really was an admirable effort? I think it's the kind of criticism that happens whenever you come out with a new idea um, that is in some ways, an implicit criticism of the status quo. Um, and some of the criticism had to do with how well we'd executed that idea, and that was fine. We knew that we hadn't done everything right. But most of it was that this general kind of backlash against the sense that we were creating a magazine because we thought uh, traditional political journalism was failing. So it was not surprising to me that that was greeted with some hostility. Um, but, you know, the important thing was, and this was very important for John, that the idea worked in the sense that we did get people to read George who would never previously have read political magazines. He had people coming up to him all the time and saying that George was the first political magazine they'd ever read. And that was more important to him than the approval of the political journalism establishment. One of the words which uh, crops up... Uh actually time and time again in these pages to describe John F. Kennedy Jr. is dignity. Mm-hmm. That he was, uh, I mean, for the fact that for all of his youth and, and energy and vitality and down-to-earth uh, nature, he was also a, a very dignified person, and dignity was important to him. Yeah. And uh, you, you talk about how he was really stretched between his own natural grace and dignity and his desire for George to be fun and down-to-earth, and yet somehow dignified that's all the same, mm-hmm. and then being pulled away from that position by certain commercial concerns mm-hmm. and, and the wish for, for George to be financially viable, which meant sometimes sacrificing some right. of that dignity. Yeah, it's really true, and John wanted George to do well. He really wanted to, sh- to show all the skeptics that, uh, that he was serious about it and that George could succeed. Um, at the same time, some of the things that success required uh, were things that went against his grain a little bit. I, I think it may be against uh, some of the things that his mother had uh, influenced him about. And uh, at one point, this came up because uh, during one stretch when we were having a tough time getting advertising, uh, George started ex- accepting ads from the National Rifle Association. Um, and Given what had happened to John's father and uncle, this seemed uh, really inappropriate. Uh, And we got a few letters from readers uh, pointing that out. And I remember raising the issue with John one day and saying, listen, do we have to take these ads 
And he sort of sighed and said, yeah, I, I know, I feel the same way, but we need the advertising pages. And that was a sense in which, one way in which he did make compromises, um, sometimes against his better judgment, because he wanted to uh, prove to people that you could make a mainstream political magazine successful. So much of the magazine business is about the ads. Yeah. And uh, you, you, you make a point, at, uh, at, at, actually at a couple of different points in the book, you, you talk about how a uh, number of ads was, was a, a very Im- important concern. At one point, I think you talk about a kind of a workshop you held as a staff where there was a list of right. maybe uh, five big magazines, and John was very anxious for, uh, for the magazine George to climb yep. up that list in terms of ad revenue. Mm-hmm. This was always a challenge for us. You know, I, I think uh, people may not know this, but magazines don't make money on subscriptions. Uh, they maybe break even on subscriptions or even lose money. Uh, they make money on newsstand sales uh, because people f- pay full price. Uh, and that's why we had such commercial covers in part, uh, because we wanted to sell newsstand copies. And they make money on advertisements. Uh, now, to get uh, advertisements, you have to have a certain number of readers. Um, and uh, generally, for a national magazine, a half million uh, readers is a good amount. That's what advertisers want. Well, we never quite got there on a regular basis. And moreover, uh, our, the subject of our magazine, politics, was not something that many advertisers really thought was conducive for showcasing their products, uh, whether it was alcohol or or cars or fashion. Um, it was easier for them to say, well, we're a men's fashion company. Let's advertise in GQ or Esquire. Uh, well, um, we sell women's jewelry. Let's advertise in Vogue. Uh, so that was always an uphill struggle for George. We're talking with Richard Blow, the author of American Son, a portrait of John F. Kennedy Jr., book published by Henry Holt and Company. One of the things that is so interesting about uh, the, the, your experience of working at George is the fact that in some respects it was clearly a lot of fun, a relatively relaxed atmosphere. And on the other hand, there were those moments in time when there was great tension, not only tensions in terms of approaching deadlines and the, the mad dash to get uh, a given issue uh, finished, but also the tremendous uh, tension animosity that uh, began brewing between John F. Kennedy Jr., and his business partner, uh, Michael Berman, to the point where there were screaming matches that the rest of the Mm -hmm. staff could hear through closed doors. Well, that's right. Um, Again, the context of this is that uh, George received far more attention than any of us had ever anticipated. Uh, And and partly, I mean, almost entirely, that was because of John, uh, who, as he was emerging into public life, uh, never really realized how much interest in him there was. Even he had underestimated that. So having said that, here you had two guys, John Kennedy and Michael Berman, who had started this magazine as equal partners, uh, both making very important contributions. But all of the attention was focused on John, and this created a very unhealthy imbalance. Uh, Michael felt quite frustrated about the fact that his contributions were not uh, getting any recognition. And... uh, and the two started fighting over uh, sort of the day-to-day running of the magazine. But the underlying tension, however, was you had two friends going into business, and one of them is one of the most famous people in the world, and the other one is not. 
invariably there are going to be problems that result. Um, and that certainly happened with John and Michael. They did start fighting with each other. On occasion, they would start screaming at each other. Um, eventually, it got so awkward that uh, that Michael had to leave the magazine. You uh, also talk, of course, it, it's it's not not a new revelation, certainly in your book, but when you begin talking about uh, JFK Jr.'s relationship with uh, Carolyn Bassett, who uh, eventually became his wife, right. there was also a, a certain volatility in that uh, relationship, which occasionally was caught on camera and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it in, in John F. Kennedy Jr.'s personality which, which led to this? Or w- w- Did you see him as more of the, the victim of circumstance, or did he have kind of a hair-trigger temper or this mm-hmm. volatile side to his personality? Well, uh, John actually was a pretty non-confrontational person. He was so polite that if something was bothering him, he was often reluctant to bring it up. And sometimes I think that meant he kept things inside himself until they just sort of erupted. Um, but one of the, the most appealing qualities, I think, about him was that if he lost his temper, he would get it off his chest <laughs> quite quickly and quite loudly, but then it would be over. It would just be forgotten. He wasn't the kind of thing, who, the kind of guy who would go back to a sore spot and, and sort of pick at it again and again and keep bringing it up. Uh, he'd get it off his chest, and then it was done with. Uh, now, regarding his wife, uh, I just felt that uh, these were two very strong-willed and passionate people. Um, it's what made that relationship work, uh, because this was a marriage under very difficult circumstances, uh, given the amount of scrutiny they got. But at the same time, the, the same kind of passion that held them together would sometimes produce you know, pretty dramatic arguments between the two. Uh, the flip side of the intensity of their love. When they got mad, they'd really get mad. Uh, you had all kinds of uh, experiences in, in working on this uh, on this magazine. One of my favorite stories, and I think uh, some of our listeners would especially appreciate it because it took place right down the road from us, is the story you tell about uh, uh, an experience at a George party, a special George right. magazine mm-hmm. gathering uh, during the Democratic National Convention, something which happened at the uh, Art Institute of Chicago. Yeah. And uh, my word, as we read this uh, story, uh, we are really treated to a, a, a crystal clear picture of what, of, of that intense scrutiny that you were just talking about, that all eyes were on JFK Jr. and whatever uh, the project happened to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about that memorable night in, uh, in Chicago. This was a remarkable night in uh, August, I think, of 1996, uh, when George threw a party at the Democratic National Convention. We'd thrown one at the Republican Convention uh, that was uh, fairly small and, and uh, quite fun, but modest. But this party, the Democratic Convention, started to get way out of hand. Uh, originally, we were going to have a couple hundred people. Uh, but more and more people wanted to come, and eventually the, the guest list totaled around 2,000 people uh, for a party at the Art Institute in Chicago in the courtyard of, of that museum. Uh, now, there were all sorts of celebrities who were supposed to be there that night, people like um, Kevin Costner and Oprah Winfrey, uh, but clearly the fact that John was throwing this party was the great source of excitement. And I remember very well uh, that when he arrived and walked into the courtyard of the museum, there was this 
this kind of electricity in the air, and people started sort of surrounding John and, and flocking to where he was, straining to get a glimpse of him. Uh, there was a spotlight in the courtyard, and, and it was sort of following his every movement. And you could see that wherever he went, the whole crowd would, would sort of follow along with him. Uh, it was a very surreal experience, and to my mind, it showed a little bit what it, what it would be like if John did go into politics, the kind of excitement and energy that he would stimulate. Uh, it would have been a remarkable campaign, uh, whatever John ran for. What I find fascinating is to contrast that picture in uh, the Art Institute of people swarming around JFK Jr. to catch a glimpse of him, or better yet, to even shake his hand, to talk with him a moment. I mean, just the delirium that level of excitement surrounding him. And yet, on the other hand, the fact that for, for most of the time, JFK Jr. had no bodyguard, not surrounded mm-hmm. by an entourage, uh, the way in which he got around New York City and so on, uh, was remarkably normal. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Well, I think that's a testament to uh, how well his mother raised him, which was to be uh, without pretension um, and to try to lead as... Uh, I, I, I couldn't say normal because John never led a normal life, but to try to do the things that he wanted to do without worrying too much about how much fame would keep him from doing them. John liked to rollerblade. Uh, he liked to ride his bike in Manhattan, so he would do those things. Uh, and he, uh, this was a guy who really longed for authentic experience. Um, he did not want his whole life to be lived through the filter of celebrity and fame. So, uh, he did these things because he enjoyed them, but there was a certain um, impressive quality about the fact that he was so unpretentious and he didn't feel the need to surround himself with um, sort of a king's court um, or a bodyguard or something like that. Um, and I think it meant a great deal to New Yorkers um, that here was a guy who was uh, so famous and, and wealthy uh, and who could ride around in um, chauffeured limousines all the time if he'd wanted to, and yet he was part and parcel of New York City and and out there in the mix with all the rest of us. Uh, That's what I mean sometimes when I say that John was a Democrat with a small D. Uh, He was, uh, in many ways, uh, quite different from all the rest of us, but in many ways um, just, just one among many as well. One of my favorite stories uh, you tell in this, it was so thought-provoking because it thought it just never occurred to me before, but uh, when, when John F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, finally mar- marries uh, Carolyn Bassett, uh, that was really kept a secret from the whole world, including those of you at, at George. Mm-hmm. You, you really found out about it after the fact, if I'm not mistaken. Well, we, we pretty much guessed it a few days beforehand, but nobody wanted to say anything about it because uh, we didn't want to jinx it. Um, and we didn't want to put John on the spot. He seemed to be in such a wonderful mood in the days before his wedding. Nobody wanted to kind of interrupt that that mood of his. <laughs> you, uh, you, you talk about how, uh, in, in the wake of his marriage, you faced, and of course other people at George uh, faced the same challenge of, what do you buy uh, <laughs> as a wedding present for yeah. one of the most famous people in the world? Oh, it was a real challenge. I remember that so well because uh, uh, people kept sending gifts to our office. Um, it was the the 
address they had for John and these unbelievable presents were coming in from uh, sort of famous people and often from fashion designers. Uh, just beautifully wrapped, wonderful presents were being delivered uh, almost by the truckload, it seemed. So what do you get a man who seems to have everything and if he doesn't have it can certainly afford it more than you can? Um, it was a challenge. I mean, it wasn't as if John and Carolyn had registered at Williams-Sonoma or Creighton Barrel or something. <laughs> the other thing that I love about that story, not only you know, as you kind of talk about your, the, how uncomfortable a challenge it was, but I, I want you also to uh, tell our listeners about the, the thank you note yeah. that, that you received from him and the way it was signed and, 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 and the way you describe what, what you think that uh, really represented. Well, um, I wound up uh, buying John a sort of a small silver box uh, with a little uh, lock in the center. Uh, and after I gave that to him, about two weeks later, I got this small card in the mail um, with uh, the initials JFK embossed in black on the top. And it said, Dear Rich and Nissa. Uh, Nissa was my girlfriend at the time. Um, thank you very much for the beautiful Bauhaus box. Um, I'll keep my milk duds and other accoutrements in it. Um, and uh, thank you so much for thinking of me and Carolyn. Love, John. And I was very touched by that, uh, not because I thought that the connection we had was that close. It wasn't. We were still uh, colleagues and friends. But because John himself was just sort of overflowing with love at the time, and uh, he really appreciated the people who were sort of sharing in that good feeling of his, uh, that he, uh, he was just ecstatic about being married and, and about how well everything had gone, and uh, the guy was, was really overflowing with happiness. As During your time at George, uh, you rose from the ranks, and uh, uh, by, by the time of JFK's uh, uh, death, uh, you were the only one, I think, of the uh, original editors to still be with the magazine. That's right. Um, aside from that change, uh, how would you characterize the change in your relationship with John F. Kennedy Jr.? Uh, how close did the two of you uh, eventually become? That's a good question, because when we started, there was, a, I think, kind of mutual suspicion uh, between John and me, in a way. Uh, I was a little skeptical about him, because he was supposed to be this sort of dilettante celebrity. And he was skeptical about me, because he knew that I came from Washington, and uh, I had written uh, some unflattering pieces about politicians. So I represented something that he wasn't really comfortable with. As time went on, though, I, I came to admire John more and more uh, because I saw how difficult often the daily circumstances of his life were. And I think he came to feel uh, a bit closer to me because he saw that I was really dedicated to the magazine and because John himself came to understand better uh, what it is that journalists do, um, uh, both when they write good stories and when they write critical stories. Uh, and Ironically, I wound up being more skeptical about the media because I saw how often things were written about John that were completely fictional. Now, that's what he'd known all his life. It didn't surprise him that journalists would make things up. But I was shocked by it. Uh, maybe I was naive, but I, I just couldn't believe the stuff that was written with absolutely no basis in reality. So uh, I, I think that we really connected over um, our connection to the magazine and the fact that we both felt this this great stake in its 
in its success. Uh, he and I, for all our differences, both really believed in the importance of a political magazine um, for the rest of us. When we get to that point in the book where the plane goes down and uh, and uh, the news is announced that uh, JFK Jr. Has, has perished, one of the things that's very striking to me is how different the book looks from that point on. And sort of this, this long standard narrative breaks down into small little chunks, uh, little flashes, little vignettes. Um, I wonder how conscious a decision mm. that, that was for you to uh, write in, a, in, 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 a, in, a, in quite a different style from that point on. You know, that, that is actually one of the smartest questions about this book I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, because things really did change uh, then. I mean, the, 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 the emotion was so intense around the time of John's death. And the memories, there are certain memories that are just so vivid, but also kind of self-contained, uh, that it was something of a conscious decision to change the writing style and try to capture these episodic moments uh, that really said something about how hard it was for all of us at George uh, when John died and how there were these things that happened that were just so awkward and painful and, and bittersweet. Uh, and I wanted to try to try to capture those moments um, as they happened, which was all, all sort of like raindrops falling on a roof. Mm. Um, and, and that's why the style of the writing did change. And, and, and of course, as you just said, the, the, the whole color of everything uh, was so dramatically altered in that moment. I suppose your grief was kind of a strange grief in that uh, you still at that point did not exactly count JFK Jr. as a close friend, and yet he was such an integral, central person in your life, and for him suddenly to be taken away. Yeah, to be I devastating. think so. I mean, I, you know, after four years of working for him, I felt that I'd come to understand him pretty well, and I felt that he had grown so much himself during that time. John was uh, near the end of his life, but so comfortable with himself, and and uh, so much I think more sure about where he was going, where he what he wanted to do with himself, and uh, I had come to feel this enormous respect for him. I mean, he was not a perfect man. He was not a saint, and he didn't do everything right. But given the, uh, the pressures that he was under, I thought he handled uh, his life and its weirdness so well uh, that I, I couldn't help but feel this enormous admiration for the guy. Uh, and this enormous sense that the hope that people had for him, the sense of his potential uh, to be a significant leader one day, that that was actually right, that John's potential was not just because uh, he was charismatic or handsome or the son of a Kennedy, but he had real leadership qualities, and he took uh, the idea of public service very seriously, and that this guy could be a wonderful leader one day, the kind of leader who could inspire the country. So when he died, uh, my death, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> my grief, was because not just because of what he represented uh, in a mythic way, but because I knew that that was real. I knew that his potential was genuine. Uh, so it was almost doubly painful.
that so much was lost. Yeah. Just a couple of quick questions about the actual writing of the book. Um, was it was it difficult to decide to write this book? I mean, did you have to really think long and hard about whether or not to do this, or did you really feel a, a very strong compulsion? And did you sit down to write this book with with very little hesitation? Hmm. Uh, I thought about it a lot uh, because I knew that uh, just the decision to write the book would be a controversial one. But at the same time, I never really doubted that decision. Uh, I, I I believe so strongly that uh, what had been said about John at the time of his death, even though most of it was complimentary, it felt really inadequate to me that so much emphasized what he had not accomplished rather than what I thought he had. Uh, so I knew that, that there was a compelling reason to write the book. What I was concerned about was whether, A, I could do it well enough, and, and B, if, um, it could be, if it could cut through the inevitable controversy and people could sort of uh, take it on its own terms. In the book, you mention another one of my favorite books, which is George Stephanopoulos's All Too Human. Mm-hmm. And one of the parallels, I mean, there are several interesting parallels, but one of them is that I'm really struck in that book by how much George Stephanopoulos himself lives up to the title of All Too Human. Yeah. I mean, he is very, very honest and forthright about his own mistakes and missteps. Yeah. And it is at least as much about that as it is about President Clinton and his indiscretions. And um, your book, similarly, there is a real honesty not only about JFK Jr., but also about about you right. and uh, some of your honest uh, mistakes uh, made along the way, the yeah. Andrew Sullivan story, for instance, and mm-hmm. all kinds of other things that, that come up along the way. Was that a very conscious decision? Did you feel like you needed to go out of the way to be very honest about I really uh, did. About that? Yeah. Listen, I felt that if I was going to tell an honest story about John Kennedy, I'd better be uh, pretty darn honest about myself, too, because um, if I'm going to write about some of the things I thought you know, where he made missteps, uh, I wanted to say that I, I wasn't saying I was perfect either, um, and at the same time, I also wanted to show what a what a learning experience it was for me. Um, I made a lot of mistakes at George, particularly in the beginning, uh, because I wasn't used to that level of attention, and and uh, and I wasn't used to working with someone so famous. Um, and uh, I, I think that it was important to include those things in the book. Uh, because if I'm going to write honestly about John, I, I, I just thought I'd better do the same about myself. Well, that you have certainly accomplished. I found it a very compelling book. American so Son much. by Richard Blow. Uh, Henry Holt and Company is the publisher. Richard Blow, I'm so grateful for you being so generous with your time today. It was a real pleasure to speak with you today on The Morning Show. Uh, the pleasure's all mine. Thanks so much for having me on.